hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. Today we're very excited to have a special guest joining us. Cece, will you please do the introductions? So we have with us Ronnie Alvarado, a senior editor at Simon Element, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. A graduate of Wesleyan University and the Columbia Publishing Course, Ronnie strives to publish voice-driven works of nonfiction that inspire readers and incite action. She is also the only editor to share a book with Carly and to share a book with me. So Ronnie is extra special. Welcome to the podcast, Ronnie. Thank you so much for having me, Cece and Carly. I am so excited to be here and talk talk about great books with hooks with you guys. And I just want to start with a quick little disclaimer that all of my opinions are my own and excited to dive in. Wonderful, Ronnie. Thank you. Yeah, and that goes for the rest of us too. I don't think we say it enough on the podcast, but everything is really, really subjective. You know, just because we say something doesn't mean that goes for all agents or everyone's going to consume the work in the same way. So take everything we say with a pinch of salt. All righty, we're going to kick ourselves off with that first query. Carly, can you please read it for us? All right. 
Some of you guys might remember this query because I reviewed it back in May and this is a revision. So if it's familiar to you guys, that is why. Dear Carly, imagine you're a control freak married to a slacker. Now imagine an accident leaves the slacker in charge of everything in your life. And I do mean everything. That's the premise of Hands Free, my dual POV 90,000 word up market book club novel. Given your interest in fiction with emotional, well-paced, voicey narratives, it could be what you're looking for. Hands Free puts relatable, complex characters, like those in All Adults Here by Emma Straub, into a separated but living together setting similar to Separation Anxiety by Laura Zygmunt. It explores the way undiagnosed neurodivergence can damage a long-term marriage. Just three weeks into a separation from Jeremy, her husband of 15 years, Alyssa Stern has regained her crisp efficiency. She's thrown herself into single parenting, their exuberant nine-year-old daughter, and her hands-on artistry has just landed a wedding so high-profile it could save her small cash-strapped bakery. Life goes smoothly without the chaos Jeremy generates. Then a chipmunk sends Alyssa flying over the handlebars of her bike, breaking both her arms. Jeremy insists on moving back in to care for her, an effort to prove himself that soon goes awry. Alyssa can no longer meet her own exacting standards, so the wedding project threatens to bankrupt the business and drain their life savings. When two sudden but not surprising ADHD diagnoses emerge for the Stern's daughter and for Jeremy, the marriage, the business, and Alyssa herself teeters on the brink. Set in a tiny town in New York's Catskills, Hands Free was inspired by my husband's bike accident, after which I became his hands for two months. I'm a freelance writer with bylines and publications, including the New York Times, Epicurious, and Fiction in Mom Egg Review. A personal essay that appeared in the Washington Post was selected for Best Food Writing Anthology. My cookbook, Parents Need to Eat Too, was published in 2012 by William Morrow. My agent for the book only handles nonfiction. Before all that, I worked in book publishing. When I left, I was VP of Advertising and Promotion for the Crown Publishing Group. I live in Queens and Narrowsburg, New York, with my husband, our teenage son, who has ADHD, and two rather large cats. I'm working on my next novel. Following are the first five pages. May I send you the full manuscript? Debbie Koning. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was our word count there and what was your take on that? All right, so the word count was 388 words. So this was interesting. I didn't purposefully go back and read my notes from last time because I kind of wanted to just read it as if, oh, if I was to get a query a second time, how would I feel about that? So I knew there was a little kind of note at the top to, to tell me that this was something I'd read before, but I could, I recognized the name and the file name and that sort of thing. So I had known kind of my expectations were like, oh, I've read this before for sure. That said, I started the first paragraph and I didn't recognize it, which was great. So the first line I was like, I, I didn't love it, but it did feel unfamiliar to me. So I was like, okay, this is a new project. But I really liked the title, the comps, you know, the kind of explaining and the framing of that like hook section. I liked the second half of that opening paragraph much more than I liked the first. I really liked the words like crisp efficiency. I liked that idea of like her trying to like regain that. I liked that. I also, I think that it was, it, this was much stronger than what I remember from last time, because I think last time it came off a little bit more like chick lit from what I remember. And so I think this is coming off a little bit more kind of, you know, upmarket book club novel, which was how it was being pitched. I also really liked that this was inspired by a real event. Obviously, I don't like that you got in an accident and broke your hands. That is terrible. But obviously, we love when there's kind of that infused POV of, you know, this happened in real life. The only thing that I was kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this. And obviously, this is a discussion point for us kind of discussing it was I, I had to read this a few times to kind of like 
figure out how I felt about how this was presented. So it says like when two sudden, but not surprising ADHD diagnoses emerge for the Stern's daughter for Jeremy, the marriage, the business and Alyssa herself teeters on the brink. And I was like, does this frame ADHD as like this huge like problem? And so if some, I don't have ADHD, if I did, how would I feel about the way that this is kind of positioned? Like I obviously understand it is a neuro concern. It's a like medical thing, but I was like, is this framing it as if like, ADHD is something that's just going to like topple your life. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but like that was what I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel. Again, I am not a person in that position. So I wasn't sure how other people might feel about that kind of presentation. So that was obviously something we could discuss, but I thought the author biobarograph was great, which I remember from last time us discussing. And obviously this person has, you know, incredible experience, you know, in, in book publishing, kind of understanding the, the ways and how book publishing works. So that was my take. Thank you, Carly. Yeah, I see your point there. 100% see what you're saying there. Okay, Ronnie, over to you. I really agree with everything that Carly said. And adding to that, I think the really winning quality here is that this explores undiagnosed neurodivergence and how that affects interpersonal relationships. And I really wish that the author led with that here. It's such a trendy and timely topic that I really feel that by putting it in the first or second line of your query letter, it really, it really could have elevated it more. I admittedly am a bit confused on what the stakes of this book are and what the genre actually is. I don't know whether it's literary fiction or some chiclet or up just upmarket trendy fiction. We go through so many things like a dissolution of a marriage to a chipmunk, which I have so many questions about this chipmunk. And I'm just not sure how much I should be invested in these characters or how I'm supposed to feel at the end of reading this query letter. I also, I love that this is inspired by true life events. I think that always adds something to the purpose of the book and to what the author is trying to convey when they're writing from a place of truth in real life. And I thought the comps here were great as well. And I love that we we in the book industry love people who also love books. Um, so I love that this author has a background in publishing. Thank you, Ronnie. Okay, we're handing it over to Cece now. I will just add one minor note, which is a pet peeve of mine. I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast before, and I'm super curious to know what our listeners think, if you agree, if you disagree. But there's a line that reads, she's thrown herself into single parenting, their nine-year-old. And I'm like, she's not a single parent, right? Like she has, like this child has a father. I feel very strongly that single parenting is single parenting. Like unless the person is not in the picture, whether through death or, be, or abandonment or something else, it is not single parenting. I am not trying to nitpick. It's okay for you to keep this in your query letter because it would not stop me from requesting pages at all. It's just one of those things that I read and I go, no, it's not single parenting. So there you go. You, you found out my pet peeve today, listeners. Thank you, Cece. I'm going to give my pet peeve. So there's the sentence here that I just, and I want to check with you guys if you get the same meaning from it. So it goes, then a chipmunk sends Alyssa flying over the handlebars of her bike, breaking both her arms. Now, I imagine this really combative chipmunk coming to her while she's lying on the ground and breaking both of her arms, because that is how the sentence is structured. So I would prefer then a chipmunk sends Alyssa flying over the handlebars of her bike, causing her to break both of her arms as opposed to breaking both of her arms because I imagine the chipmunk doing that but that might just be me being pedantic all righty so Carly can we go to you and you can tell us what's in those pages so this part I think again if you listen to the episode back in May I think this is 
pretty much exactly the same, but I'll obviously give the recap for anybody that hadn't listened to that episode. So we start in the morning, an early morning. Our protagonist, Alyssa, has gotten up early. She's working on her baking project where she's kind of getting ready for this big wedding that we learned about in the query letter. We know that she's kind of getting her daughter ready for the bus. She sleeps in a little bit and she's like, where's again it's co-parent because we know that the kind of separated husband lives in an airbnb property on their property but kind of in a separate building so we we learned that setup as well the daughter is reading harriet the spy not getting ready for school she has to kind of get her out the door and has a lot going on then we flip over to the husband's point of view he wakes up to the sound of the bus kind of making a noise and kind of taking the daughter off to school. And we're in his POV for a little bit where we're kind of talking about in his own head expenses and how, you know, he's been living in this Airbnb property, which is draining their savings because obviously like that was making money for them. And they have a little conversation, the kind of separated husband and wife about the animal, their pet having to go to the vet and the wife, Alyssa, having a lot to do and asks the husband, Jeremy, to take the pet to the vet. So I think it's the same opening. Great, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that? All right. So I always think it's so interesting when we review something on the podcast, which we've done again, because I think it's essentially the same. But the writer who submitted this is probably like, I made this change and this change and this change and this change. But like the essence of how I feel about this project really haven't changed because it's not substantially changed. That makes sense. So I think this is a really good exercise for writers who are like, why don't agents review my project like again and again? Or, you know, just not understanding that, yes, we do remember everything, nearly everything, because certain stories do really stick with us, right? Like you guys are storytellers. And so when I'm trying to slip between stories, I obviously can do that, but I'm going to remember something that I read, you know, that was only a handful of months ago. So essentially my feelings about this project haven't substantially changed. However, as I said, I do think there are small things that probably have changed. And I don't know if this line was the same last time. And again, you astute listeners can remind me, but the, the first line is great. So this is a new line. Keep it. If I liked it before, great. I was smart then too. But the first line is, 1,200 cookies stood between Alyssa Stern and the end of her marriage, period. I think that is a great first line. We have the number, we have the cookies, we have the character, we have the marriage. Like, that's just like a kind of a summary of essentially what we imagine this book to be about. Everything in one line. So I just, I really, really liked that line. It was also a bit of a thinker, right? Because you're just like, why do 1,200 cookies stand in the way? I just, anyway, I thought that was a really awesome first line. I also liked the next paragraph when she's like, you know, doing her work in terms of the baking and the icing, the cake, like the word choice I thought was really, really excellent. I really enjoyed that. I think this is something we talked about last time, which Ronnie, your point in the query letter, which is like the stakes. What's at stake here, right? We're like, we're talking about a marriage. We're talking about a business. Really, what are the stakes, right? They're a little bit on the the less intense side, obviously, like financial ruin and marriage aren't light topics in terms of stakes in real life, but in a novel, they can come off a little bit soft. And so here she's talking about on the first page, talking about the work she's doing for this wedding. And I don't think we have to go as in depth into this Nicole Turner, you know, the daughter of the area's leading philanthropist, like all of this stuff about the importance of the, you know, the character that she's trying to impress in terms of the bride. I don't know that that piece of like, I would honestly just cut that paragraph. I made a note. So everybody that sees the notes will see that cut that. And then the only line I think we should keep is the bride approved the prototype yesterday, because that will just, you know, let us know there is a bride. And we know that she's important. But you know, and you can allude to that. But I would just cut. I think that's a lot of info dumping. I think that's a lot of backstory. 
And I also made some notes about like what I remembered from last time and what I liked about last time. But another thing I remember talking about last time was the POV of the husband. And I think it's really sharp. I remember this last time saying that he called the daughter Noodle and he says, have a great day, Noodle, like he muttered to himself. And I just, I like that husband's point of view, even though, again, the stakes are super low. He's like just, you know, chilling in the Airbnb in this scene. And it's, again, really low stakes, but we're getting a sense like he's a real character with multiple layers to him. And that remains. But other than that, yeah, it's just, you know, the stakes here. I think, I think this is tough. For me, you know, it was then and it was now because of that stakes element. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Ronnie, we're going to pass it over to you. I want to first agree with Carly here that this is a fantastic opener. Like 1,200 cookies between the end of a marriage, like that just drew me in right away. But I, there was just so much going on in these five first pages. And there were just so many tidbits that admittedly distracted me. The author threw things like sex toys and cat puke and growing up in Australia and very fancy wedding cakes, all in some somewhat of, to use Carly's phrase, an info dump. And I just found myself like almost like watching a tennis court match, just like going back and forth and back and forth. And I just couldn't settle down and really connect with the characters here. I wish that I just got a little bit more of an in-depth look at both Alyssa and Jeremy and maybe some less about their background and just the wedding cake and the bride. I just, I didn't get the chance to actually connect with them. And I just, I wish I knew a little bit more about what the emotional states were for Alyssa. I was just not sure whether she was so concerned about her daughter, about the end of her marriage or about pleasing this fancy bride. And I just wish the author would have focused on just one of those in at least these opening pages. Thank you, Ronnie. Yeah, interiority is so important. And for Debbie, you know, as a writer myself, I feel your pain because we keep getting told those first five pages have got to be full of things that grab the reader's attention. And so we throw a lot of things that we hope are going to grab the reader's attention. But then it's so difficult because it can't be too distracting from getting to know the characters and becoming invested in them. You know, you're walking a very fine line and it is really tough. Let's speak now to our queen of interiority who might be able to offer some suggestions, Cece. So I think there's so much potential here in the setup because you have a divorced couple still living within a few feet of each other, right? And so we're seeing their routines, their lives. I would say give us less of the routine, like keep that, but, you know, maybe cut it in half. And then like, what secret is she keeping? She has to be keeping it secret. What secret is he keeping? The hope he has or maybe had for their marriage, is it sincere hope? Is it desperate hope? Have either of them taken off their wedding rings? Have they had to field awkward questions from their daughter about why is daddy living over there? From parents at school during drop-off or pickup. The potential for juiciness is here. Like you have an orange and it's full of juice. I just think you need to squeeze the orange, you know? I also picked up on something, and maybe I misunderstood. I'm super curious if anyone else saw it. But there's a line that reads, so the husband, he has a sister. His sister's name is Cheryl. And he's staying at what is usually their Airbnb. So usually the rental money from that Airbnb pays for their mortgage. That is a big deal, paying for a person's mortgage, right? And there's a line that reads, normally vacation rentals paid the mortgage. Right now, Cheryl did, but wouldn't indefinitely. So is Cheryl paying for their mortgage? Like, is Cheryl loaning the money? Is that what that line means? Because if so, there's tons of potential for juiciness there. Taking money from his sister, and in her case, from her sister-in-law. Like, when you borrow money, you have potential for tension. 
So I really think there's a lot of potential here and it's just about squeezing the orange. And in some cases, it's about not squeezing the orange. Here's what I mean. There's a line that says, this is an Alyssa's point of view. If things didn't go according to plan though, dot, 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 Alyssa pushed that thought aside like a spent pastry bag. No time to worry now. First of all, great job on the spent pastry bag, but also, no, let's not foreshadow things not working out. You don't want the protagonist to foreshadow the thing that is to come, and we know it is to come because of the query letter. That's a tension leak. So let's not do that. Basically, I'm saying grab your orange, squeeze your orange. That makes a lot of sense in my head. Love the analogy, Cece. Thank you for that. Right. Okay, so we are now going to have a look at Cece's query. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you as always for your wonderful podcast. I hope I've learned a lot, and I know we in the writing community value it greatly. You have reviewed a previous version of the Below Query about a year ago. I've since taken your feedback and incorporated it into a rewrite. This query is for Cece, who may appreciate the eerie, atmospheric, horror quality of the work. The Ghost Singer, complete at 72,000 words, combines the chilling ghostly presence of Joe Hill's heart-shaped box with the time travel elements of Adrian Brody's The Jacket. Guilt is a powerful ghost, and for 93-year-old Isaac, it's about to take a terrifyingly real form. Isaac, a Ukrainian immigrant, has called the small New England town of Hunter Valley home since the end of World War II. After suffering a seizure, Isaac finds himself in Haunted Valley Medical, so nicknamed for the murderous entity that stalks its halls. Trapped in the hospital by a raging blizzard, Isaac befriends Will, a 12-year-old boy recovering from a tragic car accident that took the lives of his parents. The two quickly form a bond as they become the prime targets of the malevolent spirit's attacks. Isaac's nurse, Pia, knows the vengeful spirit firsthand, having lost her grandmother to it years earlier. Pa, a ghost singer, can banish spirits by weaving their true names into her songs. For the past 30 years, she has attempted to destroy this particular entity, only succeeding in forcing it into dormancy. Isaac's arrival, however, brings her new hope. The spirit's reluctance to kill Isaac suggests a connection that might reveal its true identity. Instead of killing Isaac, the ghost forces him to face a long-buried memory, his inability to save his daughter during the war's early days. Will becomes an unwitting witness to Isaac's painful past as he is drawn into the memory as well. As the attacks intensify and Will's condition worsens, Isaac must confront his past to protect the boy he's come to cherish. I am a Jewish refugee from the former Soviet Union and currently reside in Seattle with my wife, two boys, and a floppy-eared coonhound. My work earned me admission to the Futurescapes 2018 retreat, and my short stories have been published in Read Magazine, Armorola Magazine, and Caterskill Basin Literary Journal. Thank you for your time and consideration, Eugene Polonsky. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Before we hand it across to Ronnie, I'm just going to say that that came in at 398 words. So quite a long query over there. Okay, Ronnie, what were your thoughts? I love gothic horror, first of all. So this was a particularly lovely to read and critique. I thought it was such a powerful opener with guilt as a powerful ghost. I think that's a great first line and it really drew me in. I wish I had a little bit more, and I know this is difficult in such a short query letter, but I wish I had a little bit more about Isaac himself, other than the fact that he's just a 93-year-old refugee. I would have loved to know a bit more about what's going on with him. What are his internal conflicts? 
I'm curious with the unlikely friendship element of a 12-year-old boy with Will. I'm curious of how much that would actually play into the novel itself. A pet peeve of mine with query letters like this, it says pa, and I'm not in the second paragraph, and I'm not sure pa if that's a typo for Pia. Just a shout out for all you writers out there. I would always triple and quadruple check your query letters. As someone, as word people, we read these and typos immediately stand out to us. I wish I knew more about what the writer meant by ghost singer and true names. I think whenever you're coining unique terms, you have to be really clear about what your definition is there. But I, I love that the author is writing this also from a place of a nod to his background. And I was excited to read more. Thank you, Ronnie. Yeah, I'm always a sucker for unlikely friendships. I love those kinds of novels. Okay, Cece, we're handing it back to you before we speak to Carly. Yeah, just echoing that unlikely friendships, especially when it's intergenerational, like one person's way older than the other. It's so much potential. Like, I love it so much. For the first paragraph where all the metadata should go, I would write the titles in all caps. It just really helps with readability. And I would clearly say the genre, which is horror. Right now you have horror quality of the work. And just remember that, again, agents read these in batches. And so it's really helpful to have the genre be super duper clear. I know it's horror. You know it's horror. Just write it out. It's a small fix that will go a long way. So the typo. I, I like that Ronnie brought that up because I read it as it's written, right? And especially me, like being Brazilian, I read Pa and I go, oh, father. Like her father's also in the story, you know? But then I went back and I'm like, wait, no, this is wrong. Let's read it again. So I read it again and I'm like, okay, this is a typo. It's Pia. And we're not here to like pick on you with the typos. Like Ronnie said, like we feel for you. It's it's all great. But I actually had to do a double take. And I don't know that I would have done a double take if I weren't reviewing this for the podcast. Like just being honest here, like I have so many query letters to get through and it's it's one of those things that could potentially lead to an outcome that you don't you don't want. So I mean, it's easy fix. Change it to Pia. But but just to say that sometimes typos create new words, and that's extra unfortunate. And I very much feel for you. My big note here is that I have a confusion about Pia's role. Is this dual point of view? I think it is because of the pages, in which case I would add dual POV to the metadata paragraph. But like, how do their storylines come together? In the major dramatic question paragraph, we have Isaac and Will's story coming together. I just don't understand, like, what about Pia? I wonder if there's, I really wish I could talk to you and understand, like, how do the three storylines and personalities and life journeys, how do they culminate into one thing? How do you see it all baked in? Because I am curious. And your author paragraph is super impressive. So congratulations. Thank you, Cece. Carly, we're going to hand it over to you. But could I ask as well for our new listeners, because we do have a ton of new listeners, can you just give an explanation of what the metadata is before you give the critique? So what CC is referring to are the factual bits of information at the top, meaning the genre, the word count, anything like that. That's the technical nature of the query is what CC is referring to there. Okay, so for my take, I would definitely agree with Ronnie in terms of the, there is a lot of kind of establishing this world. And so there's a naming of things, right? Like the murderous entity. And, you know, like there's just so much that we have to wrap our head around, which is, it's really tough because, you know, I had a note that said, 
around the line that said, so nickname for the murderous entity that stalks its halls. I'm like, well, named by who? Named by the community? Named by Isaac himself? Like, who named this entity, right? Like, there's all these questions around the world building, which makes these queries so tough. But I can really tell, though, there is a really strong command of language, because I also loved the line, guilt is a powerful ghost. And, you know, I had some other notes where I felt like there's some really strong lines here. And I also love the unlikely friendship. I think that is a huge, huge selling point of this novel which I which I think is great so I also obviously had the same note about Pa because at first I also thought it was Pa a dad but then it said into her song so like oh it's obviously a typo so I was able to correct myself but yeah I like everybody else definitely had to run over that again in my mind so those are my notes thank you Carly okay Cece can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages so we meet Pia at Haunted Valley where she's meeting her grandmother and Gran tells Pia that they have the name of the ghost then urges Pia to follow her so they can banish the ghost. And Pia protests saying she's not ready, saying that Gran is the ghost singer in the family to which Gran responds, what about when I'm not here? You have to do this. This is your duty. And then they go to, I believe, the basement of the hospital and she starts to sing. She starts to you know try to banish the ghost. And as She's, she fights off a memory, a childhood memory that actually also arose before. So yeah, that's that's what happens in these pages. Thank you, Cece. All right, Ronnie, we're passing it over to you to tell us what you thought of them. I was really intrigued by these opening pages and I have a lot of questions, which is great because it makes me want to keep on reading more. I was actually disappointed when the narrative left off after only five pages. I am so curious about what's going on with Gran, first of all. She's not mentioned in the query letter, so her introduction here was exciting and interesting. I'm curious as to how I should feel about her, whether she is on Pia's side, whether she's a malevolent entity. I have a note on the pages where it says she hisses, and I have so many questions about that verb. I always, as an editor, I like when I see adverbs describing a verb, because I'm not sure, is she hissing quietly? Is she hissing malevolently? What is, how is she feeling about this situation? I found some of the mechanics to be a bit confusing, and that's just in nature of the genre. There's just so much world building that I feel when readers are thrown into it, there's always questions about what's going on and who is this, for example here, who is this ghost? How is this creature fill, killed three people already? Why are they killing only men seemingly? And what's Pia's stake in all of this? I would be excited to hear more about just the memory that she's suppressing. And obviously she's dealing with some sort of interiority and childhood trauma here. So I was just excited to keep on going on. Thank you, Ronnie. You know, as a creative writing instructor, I'm always saying try and minimize your adverbs, use stronger verbs. So instead of said loudly, shouted, or instead of said quietly, whispered. But Ronnie's brought up a really good point here. So hissing can be something that's loud or soft. It could be aggressive or it could be just, you know, insinuating and sibulant, just kind of creepy. So in this kind of instance, we may need that adverb to qualify the verb for us. Right, Cece, back to you. What was your take? To build on the adverb versus verb, not even versus, but adverbs and verbs situation, there's also the potential for character development here. If Gran is hissing, maybe Pia could think to herself, she knew that hiss. Yeah, she knew that tone of voice. It's when Gran was scared. Or it's when Gran was whatever. Like the, just those layers are so, so important because my biggest note here is I really wanted more on their dynamics as granddaughter, grandmother. I am 
Like my relationship with my grandmother shaped everything about who I am. And so I am incredibly biased here, but like I love these stories and I love these elements. And we know from the query letter that the ghost is going to kill her grandmother. So I'm like dreading that that's going to happen. At the same time, I really want to know more about the dynamics. So here's an example. There's a line that reads, Grand's worked here a year and she's still the hospital oddity, the lone Sardinian immigrant in a New England town. She says nobody here knows quite to make of her. How is this similar to how Pia feels about herself? How is it different? Growing up, having a gran who was an outsider, how did it influence her own view of herself? And I'm not suggesting paragraphs and paragraphs on this, but rather carefully placed lines that could really dig into character development because it just goes such a long way. It could be something like her gran led her to believe that she would belong because she was born there, but Pia disagrees because she also feels like she doesn't belong. Or it could be something totally different, right? Like these are just examples. I really liked some of the writing here. I kept highlighting excerpts and going, oh my gosh, like, good job. Like you have a way with language and this needs to be celebrated. So congratulations. I do think that you have the opportunity to dive deeper, not just in the relationship I mentioned, but for example, they find the name of the ghost because Pia's boyfriend comes through. That's what grandma says. Grandma says, your boyfriend came through. That's Joseph who is this Joseph person? How does Pia feel about him? You know, like, wouldn't she ask how he found it? Like, was she surprised that he found it? Does Joseph usually come through? Like, there's just so much potential for relationships here. And I think that this is what's going to sell this book or not. It's how deep you'll dig into the relationships because you're doing everything else right, especially the writing. That's the big note that I have here. Thank you, Cece. High praise indeed. Okay, Carly? All right. I felt a little bit out of my element. I'm not a huge horror reader or agent. I always am appreciative of when I get thrown into situations that aren't my usual categories. So I definitely agree with everybody in the sense that there is some really strong writing here. You know, there were some lines that I highlighted, one of which there's an odor to this place, the sting of antiseptic mixing with the reek of sweat and fear. It makes her hunch breathing shallowly through her mouth. So sometimes when I read something like that, that's a very like physical description of something. I try to put my body in that position to be like, oh, is that what my body would have done in that position? And I really felt that one really deeply. I thought that was great. Another one, dried blood spatters the left shoulder of her nurse's uniform, marring the hospital's insignia's gold thread. Like amazing writing, like really, really, really talented writing here. One thing I don't think we've talked about yet, which we talk about all the time, this is a prologue. And so we are always talking about prologues on this podcast. And I always like to give a shout out to a great prologue too, because I have a reputation for, for not loving prologues all the time. But in this situation, I think it makes perfect sense because we kind of have to frame what is creepy and what is haunting. And so I think this is an example of something that works really well. I think we also all kind of maybe forgot this was a prologue because we were just right into the scene, right? Like it was very rich and descriptive and right away we're like what is this creature and what is happening in the haunting so I really just want to give a shout out there where a shout out is due. Thank you Carly. Something I just want to point out to the writer and this is because the rest of it was so strong 
Just keep in mind you've repeated the word sweat in the opening sentence and then the second sentence. So Pia's breath quickens as she steps over the threshold drenched in cold sweat. There's an odor to this place, the sting of antiseptic mixing with the reek of sweat and fear. So let's take out one of those sweats so that we just have it in one of those sentences. And this is where reading your work aloud is super helpful so that you pick up on those kinds of words. But otherwise, I agree, really, really strong writing. Right, before we end today's segment, Ronnie, I'm really curious if you've got any books coming out that you would like our listeners to know about. I do, actually. And it's one that I think will be particularly exciting to this writing community. I am blessed to be the editor of a forthcoming book publishes on January 9th of next year called A Thousand Words, A Writer's Guide to Staying Creative, Focused, and Productive All Year Long. It's edited by the novelist Jamie Attenberg, and it is a writer's guide that features encouraging essays on creativity, productivity, and writing from not only Jamie herself, but 54 other acclaimed authors, including some literary darlings like Roxane Gay, Lauren Groff, Les Nee, Meg Wolitzer, Carmen Maria Machado, Alexander Chi, and so many more. It's for any writer who has faced writer's block or just the daunting task of putting words on a page. And it's a way to help you put those words down without judgment or bias or concerns and to just really write your heart out. Thank you, Ronnie. I'm super excited about that. That book is actually in my towering to-be-read pile for the podcast. And I will be interviewing Jamie for the podcast. And this will be featured in our January bonus episode. So for those of you who are looking forward to that, mark that in your calendars. Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Remember, for our listeners, all of Carly CC's and Ronnie's notes will be made available to those of you who support us. Right, let's go to today's guest. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is a writer from the African and Iranian diasporas. He holds an MFA in creative writing from Rutgers University Camden. As a Mitchell Scholar, he received an MPhil in geography from Queen's University Belfast. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College and currently lives in North Carolina with his wife and two children. It's my pleasure to welcome Anise Vance. Anise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. It is so wonderful to get to chat to you. For our listeners, we are discussing Anissa's debut, Hush Harbor. Such an incredibly powerful book. Just so, so powerful. Really compelling, the kind of book that you want to tear through, but you can't tear through it because the language is so wonderful that you keep wanting to stop and highlight passages as well. So that rare kind of book that's really literary, but also a page turner. So Anise, before we begin, I am just going to give our readers an overview from the flap copy of what the book's about. And then I'm going to ask you to read the first page and a half just to really give them a sense of the book. So here we go. After the murder of an unarmed black teenager by the hands of the police, protests spread like wildfire in Bliss City, New Jersey. A full-scale resistance group takes control of an abandoned housing project and decides to call it Hush Harbor in homage to the secret spaces their enslaved ancestors would gather in to pray. Jeremiah Prince, alongside his sister Nova, are leaders of the revolution, but have ideological differences regarding how the movement should proceed. When a new mayor with ties to white supremacists threatens the group's pseudo-sanctuary and locks the city down, the collective must come to a decision for their very survival. So, you know, as we can see here, very very high stakes. We're always saying stories need to have high stakes. From this straight out the bat, you get exactly what these high stakes are. So Anise, before we dive into the questions, could you read that first page and a half for us, please? Absolutely. A soldier approached the car. The dog at his side raised its snout and snarled at the darkening purple sky. Malik put a hand on his chest, expecting a ripple of fear. It did not come. Instead, his heart tightened at the thought of his grandfather, hundreds of miles away, alone at home, dosing himself with anxiety pills because his only grandchild had set out for Bliss City that morning. By nightfall, that grandchild would be a traitor or a corpse or a member of the Hush Harbor resistance. Malik had left a goodbye note. Should he have asked permission, sat down and explained why he was joining what his grandfather called a moral circus? Malik knew the conversation would rapidly devolve. His grandfather would cite empty maxims about the arc of moral history and working with your enemies and forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Malik would listen with compassion and his doubt would grow. He would question his decision. How could he not? Leaving would break his grandfather's heart. No, Malik thought, it was better to simply disappear into the night with a duffel bag on his shoulder, a small notebook in his pocket, and a bus ticket in his hand. The soldier knocked on the driver's seat window. Malik noticed Sara's knuckles turn white on the steering wheel. She rolled down her window, letting in the humid air. A raindrop landed on the windshield. 
then another. The soldier glanced at the clouds and cursed before he handed Zara her documents. Your license and registration checked out, he said. Like I told you, Zara replied. We're visiting our uncle. He's getting up there. The soldier nodded and pursed his lips. Don't do anything stupid. Of course. Five miles down this road, there's another checkpoint, and you're going to need special permissions to get past that one. Got it. How far in is your uncle? Zara glanced at the GPS. Just a couple of miles from here. Go straight there, no sightseeing. We understand. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Wow. Okay, so just grabs your attention from the very first page because it just throws you straight into the action. So for our listeners, we're always saying, circle the building of your beginning to figure out the best entry point. Now, Anise, you could have gone back and started before. We could have started with Malik, with his grandfather, going through all of this, etc. before he left. So can you take us through the intentionality of beginning with this instead and giving us a tiny bit of background backstory in terms of how he got there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've written the novel many different ways over time. And one thing that I found was that dropping people right into the most or one of the most action-packed moments is often really helpful in just gripping your audience immediately, you know, especially for a debut novel and a debut novelist. That people maybe, you know, when you pick up a debut novel, you're unsure of whether you should trust the writer, right? It's it's different than picking up, you know, Emily St. John Mandel or Camilla Shamsi or, you know, one of these incredible, incredible authors that you know if you stick with them 10, 20, 50, 100 pages, it's going to pay off. With a debut novel, you're not necessarily sure. So I knew there was sort of the, the onus of making sure that I gripped people right away. The second thing, and this was outside of simply sort of technical craft in terms of where to start the story, but the second thing is that this is a complex political story told in a complex political moment in the United States and really across the world. And starting the story in a place that pushed people along, and especially people who maybe don't really want to hear this whole story, but push them along was really, really critical, right? And so there is that narrative trick there of I'm going to put you in the action so that you just kind of want to see what happens next and you want to see what happens after that. And I'm not going to reveal so much of the world to you immediately so that we don't get fears immediately prompted around, oh, you know, I'm reading a whatever. People have used all kinds of terms. I'm reading a race war book or I'm reading a book that's just uh, gratuitous in terms of its violence or, or whatever it is that, that people are going to critique. And so there was that second element that was a part of this, right? In terms of making sure I started in that moment. Where Malik is coming from to your sort of the second part of that question is I wanted to track Malik on a journey where he had already made a decision to be part of this revolution and then what that does to him by the end of his journey. There's a journey before that that the first page alludes to, which is the journey of him just deciding to become a part of the revolution, right? And that's the break with his grandfather. And so that's what that kind of alludes to, where he has to do a lot of emotional work even before he he steps into the revolution. We see more of that emotional work in flashbacks later on in Malik's section, but that's where he's coming from. So he's still a little bit meditating on that prior journey as he's entering his second journey and the journey that we really follow him him closely um, with. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, because we, we often say on the podcast, begin, you know, with conflict and him and his father having this kind of philosophical discussion would be great conflict it would set up what he's doing but for the story I think also beginning with a black man at a checkpoint when police are stopping him as well is so much about what the story is about 
right? So there's just that immediate tension that you know that this is a black character who's been stopped by the police and immediately my nerves were on edge. So you could have started earlier. We would have had great tension. We would have had conflict as the two of them argued. But this really was like the perfect, perfect entry point. In terms of your process of writing this and your inspiration, so I think you said that this story actually started about in 2010 when you were in Ireland. You got the idea for this and then you sat on it for a few years and then you started writing it. Can you take us through that journey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, about 20, 2011. I was in Ireland 2011 and 2012, in Northern Ireland particularly, and I was doing graduate research there. A big part of that graduate research was interviewing paramilitary members and people who were former paramilitary members as well. And I remember interviewing so many people. And one theme that came across over and over and over again was how easy it was, in some senses, for people who had grown up in mixed neighborhoods. And for those who don't know much about Belfast or Northern Ireland generally, the conflict can be reduced in a very, very simple way to an ethno-national conflict that pitted Catholics against Protestants. Much more complicated than that, but we don't have time to get into it. But, you know, many of these folks lived in mixed neighborhoods before the before the troubles began. Many had friends and family members who were from the opposite religious identity. And many had thought of themselves as progressive in a lot of ways. But in really tense political circumstances, unpredictable things happen. And so as I was sitting there having these conversations with people who I grew to actually really like and grew to enjoy and admire, even if they had done terrible things in the past. One thing that I became acutely aware of was that periods of extended violence are perhaps not as far away as we think they are, not as psychologically distant as, as we think they are. And in the U.S. context, I was particularly thinking about extended violence between the Black community and police officers, right? Or extended violence triggered by incidents between the black community and police officers. You know, this was a pre-George Floyd moment. It was a pre-Eric Garner moment. It was a moment where I was thinking about this in the context of my own lived experience, in the context of the lived experience of friends of mine and of the black community in, in general. And it seemed like it was something that needed to be written. It needed to be explored in some way. It needed to be digested as both a cathartic exercise, as a warning in some ways, as a deepening of our moral and ethical understanding of where we are as a nation. You know, all of these things felt like they were urgent. So, but even that said, you know, I sat on it for a few years. I didn't know how to write this thing. And I think it's a really tricky thing to write. As you, as I started writing it and as I started talking to people about it, you know, and like I alluded to earlier in this interview, one of the most common things that people would say, oh, why are you writing a race war book, right? And this was sort of the, the continual feedback. So I knew from the get-go that the subject matter was intensely complex and had it to be approached in a very particular way. And so... So I knew I had to be careful around that theme or that critique rather. And so I, I sort of put the idea to the side for, for several years. And it was only in 2014 when Eric Garner was murdered and then Michael Brown was murdered and then Tamir Rice was murdered that this once again sort of rose to the top of my list. And I knew I just had to approach it in some way and started to approach it in a, in a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different modes, including kind of, you know, as a as a TV script and then as sort of a postmodern pastiche with like journal entries and news articles and all these kinds of things. And it took a long time before it settled into the novel that it is now. 
I love that, you know, and for our listeners, there are some stories that need to percolate. There's some stories that feel bigger than perhaps your skill set at that particular moment. And it's okay to kind of put them off until you feel like you are ready to tackle them. And it's also okay to keep working at it until you get it right. So Anise, you did your MFA. Was this book workshopped during the MFA or not? No, no, it was never workshopped during the MFA. I was working on other things. And that period was really, really important for me to be able to distill the different techniques and approaches I was using down to something that felt like, oh, this is my voice, as opposed to something that was a replica of other people's voices or or something that felt forced. So that was a crucial moment. I wouldn't have been able to write Hush Harbor without that moment. But at the same time, it would have been helpful had I started writing it then just to be able to get critique. Yeah. So yeah, I assumed you had a critique on it to help you go, okay, the epistolary form is not working. You know, the articles aren't working, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something that you went through, you know, entirely on your own. Can you tell us, because our listeners love hearing from debut authors in terms of their journey to publication. Once the book was finished, how did you pitch it and how difficult was it to land an agent? And then how difficult was it after that to sell it? That is a really great question, Bianca. So the process was, for me, fairly intense. I first put out a version of Hush Harbor, which was not very good, in I think 2017, and got roundly rejected by agents for, I think, really good reasons. I just don't think it was there as a, as a novel. And then I put it out again during the pandemic, and I started to query agents about six, eight weeks, I think, before George Floyd was murdered. And it became... A very complex emotional moment for me, obviously. With George Floyd being murdered, I didn't want to give the appearance that somehow I was trying to capitalize off of that moment. And so I almost revoked the queries <laughs> and was was convinced by some folks, by some of my close family and friends that that now more than ever, this kind of story was, was needed. And so I kept the queries out there. It was a really interesting journey. Bianca, um, I got to tell you, it wasn't necessarily because of the technical craft portion of it. It was because of the politics of the book. I had several agents write back to me saying they didn't feel like, you know, Malik had enough motivation to be a part of this revolution. I had agents who, you know, were kind in that they at least wrote rejections, but clearly in their rejections were kind of, you know, gesturing towards they just didn't think this was going to be marketable or this was in any way a book that was worthy of of being or the content matter was being was worthy of being published and so it really kind of did a number on my head <laughs> i'll be frank with you it did a number on my head finally you know well i say finally it actually wasn't very long my agent responded the agent who i currently have responded maybe eight or ten weeks after my initial set of queries she asked to see the full manuscript there were a few things that had come up that i knew i needed to rewrite so i said hey you know would it be okay if i gave you the manuscript in two or three weeks there's just a few things i need to tweak I sent it to her, and then she wrote me, after she had read it, the most beautiful critique I've ever received that was just so spot on. And she said, hey, look, if you want to work towards this vision of the novel, then, you know, rewrite along these lines and then send it back to me. And I was just delighted to do that because she was so right about the novel. And also, you know, the tone of her letter, you could tell that this was somebody who was truly compassionate and truly kind and, and was committed to, to issues of social justice. Actually, one of her foremost critiques, and she's a, she's a white woman, one of her foremost critiques is that Quinn, who is the one white POV character in this novel, wasn't problematic. 
Um, and so I knew I had, you know, I knew I had the right person there. And so, you know, I rewrote it in line with her suggestions. And then she wrote me an email saying, Hey, can we have a call? Which is sort of the universal signal for, okay, you know, we, we're going to do this thing. And so I remember getting that email and just breaking down crying. And, and really it was just a, a, a powerful moment. The process to get it to editors was really exciting. That was maybe the most exciting four or five days of my life <laughs> outside of my kids being born and my wedding, of course, in those moments, but was wild because we sent it out to 1820 imprints. They got back within a few days, some, you know, with interest. And then we had the set of meetings to, to talk to different editors. And then you go into this sort of like auction process. And as someone who is a writer and not a business person, you know, the first offer that came in, I was like, okay, let's do this. This is great. <laughs> um, but, you know, but the agents then take over and start to negotiate and all and all that stuff. And it was it was a really wild process. I ended up landing at Hanover Square Press, which is just a brilliant forward thinking imprint. And I'm so grateful to be there. Ended up landing in places that with an agent and with an editor that have the both technical writing nuance and the social political nuance to handle this kind of material with care. And so I could not be more grateful for the way it turned out for me. Yeah, I love that. And there's and there's two things that you've said there that stand out for me. One, you know, I recently interviewed Jean Kwok, who spoke about how as well, she, you know, had a big name agent who offered to represent her while she was still doing her MFA because she had such promise. And when she delivered this book, he was like, oh, there's there's no market for this book. And so, you know, she was really devastated by that. And then this exact book that he said there's no market for went on to become an international bestseller. And this is the problem with gatekeepers in the industry being white being, okay, we don't see a market for this particular book because we are not necessarily comfortable with the subject matter. I mean, anyone who's like, we can't understand why Malik would do this. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. Like his motivation is so incredibly clear. Everybody's motivation to be there is incredibly clear. So one, I love hearing that you were turned down by a whole bunch of people and then it ended up in a bidding war. That is incredible because it deserved that and two for our listeners the revise and resubmit is such an incredible opportunity you know many emerging writers out there they just want the yes and so when they get the R&R if you revise and send the work back to me they're like oh no I'm not going to do that because they don't view that as the incredible opportunity it is but often this is an agent's way of seeing if the two of you are compatible, if you're able to work together, because this is a lifelong relationship. And I love that you said that you can immediately see from her notes that she shared your vision of the book, because obviously if she didn't, you would have been like, okay, no, I'm not revising along these lines, right? It's so, it's so crucial. It's so crucial. That partnership is everything. You know, Caroline Eisenman, that's who my agent is. Caroline is brilliant and is kind and is an incredible communicator and I could not imagine a better agent than her and she pushed the work to be so much better and that's ultimately what you want you want the work to be so much better since I signed on with her not because of me but since I signed on with her she's been promoted and she's at a very different stage of her career now than than when I signed on with her and I just feel so lucky to have been able to kind of land with her the thing that I would emphasize for any writer who is querying or starting the relationship with an agent is to understand that, yes, this is, you know, your novel is your baby. It is the thing that you care so deeply about and that you have a million different emotions on. 
And also you've now signed a contract to be in an industry and your agent is a professional and their job, their livelihoods depends on how these books do. And so you kind of, as a writer, are holding these two spaces inside you. One is a space of deep emotion and deep kind of attachment to the work. And the other has to be sort of intentionally cultivating the space of professionalism in regards to the work. So that when you do receive critique or when you do receive direction, it doesn't mean you're always going to follow it, but it does mean you're giving yourself the time and the space to appropriately digest it and then to come to it with a clear-headed sense of thoughts around it. And so that was definitely a journey for me and something that I was really lucky that Caroline had the patience to work with me. Yeah, she was lucky to work with you as well. So, okay, so the last thing we're going to have time for in terms of this is world building. So this is kind of dystopian. It's not that far in the future. I think it's 2030. So is that right, Nice? 2030? Or, yeah, 2030. So not even that far into the future. You say that this is Hush Harbor in a city called Bliss, New Jersey. You name the bridges, you name the rivers, etc., etc. I was frantically Googling to find this place because it felt so real to me. And I was like, man, this place doesn't exist. So can we speak a bit first about the world building in terms of setting up Hush Harbor? because you really had to nail that. And then there's a technique you use to give a lot of exposition about this particular world that I want to discuss after that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the world building initially started off as just very atmospheric. I'll be frank. Like it was, I wanted a tone. I wanted this to feel like a gritty Northeastern city that had in some ways fallen on tough times and that you kind of in your head visualized as always having sort of a cloud over it. And that's kind of what I wanted the the feel to be. And I wanted it to feel as if you were kind of in the midst of that tension. And so the rest of the world sort of emerged from that feeling. My editor was really great at pushing me towards making every image very clear. And that was something that in my craft, you know, I originally was uh, my first love in terms of writing was poetry. And so I tend towards images and metaphors and really language that loves the sound of the language as much as the clarity of the image. My editor really pushed me towards being far more clear in those images which then made me think in a way that was much more granular about the world, right? About, well, not only are there bridges into Aggie's Island, which is sort of the center of bliss, but how many bridges are there? What do those bridges look like? When were those bridges constructed? All of those kinds of questions. Can you walk under the bridge? Are there staircases up to them like you have in some cities and not other cities? Or, you know, what are the different avenues in and out of Aggie's Island? And so that kind of granular thinking really, really did help then, I think, I hope, helped, you know, readers feel, okay, this is like, this is a real place. And this feels like a heartbeat away, which, you know, falls very much in line with the purpose of the book to make it feel like this is just a heartbeat away. And so the world building really started from that place of tension, but then made its way into these sorts of very granular, very nitty gritty decisions. Yeah, it, it really felt real to me. So by the end of that process, it, it really had come alive. Right. So can you read to us from page 100 to halfway 101? I want our listeners to hear this technique that Anise has used in terms of this reporter for NPR called Asha Patel. So while I was reading it, I was going, interesting. And afterwards, I was like, oh, wow, I just saw what he did there in terms of world building and giving exposition about the world, but without feeling like the narrator's giving it. So let's let's listen to that. Asha Patel calmly delivered the obligatory West Coast disaster recovery update. The better part of Southern California remained uninhabitable. Asha reminded listeners that it would for decades. 
the camps remain stressed well beyond their breaking points. A United Nations disaster relief expert dispensed a winning quote in his Mexico City accent. When we realize that the west coast of the United States is among the biggest recipients of international aid, we begin to understand the scale of the devastation. Asha deftly flipped to a seismologist. The scientist, her voice gravel and coffee, spoke now familiar geological terms. Full margin rupture, subduction zone, Cascadia. Asha translated into simpler language. Along the west coast, one tectonic plate had been thrust under another for millennia. The pressure of the converging plates caused earthquakes at various points along their fault line. Scientists had warned of the pressure building, of a bigger earthquake, one that could destroy the west coast. And finally, that earthquake happened. Asha recited the questions asked of scientific experts daily. How likely was another earthquake off the west coast? How much more damage would it cause? The seismologist stalled. Then she, too, found a winning quote. There are no guarantees in this world. The ground beneath us is shifting at all times. Asha narrowed the segment's focus to the multi-generational Barry family. The grandparents lived in Seattle. The parents and their two children lived in Oakland. Both cities were rubble. Quinn ignored the rest of the segment, unwilling to learn the Barry family's fate. She refocused when Asha spun up incomprehensible numbers on the economic depression. Unemployment rates in the 30s. GDPs and crop prices and stock markets in historic freefall. Asha introduced a Duke economist who specialized in recovering nations. She searched him for hope like a pickpocket examines a tourist. We think this is the bottom of the fall, but you never know until you start climbing up. Asha moved on. She detailed incidents in Houston, Chicago, and Philadelphia. Brawls outside of city halls and county services buildings. The lines for food banks, housing shelters, and social services were growing longer. Asha played audio clips of the West Coast migrants involved in the skirmishes. We used to have houses, now we fight for tents. Asha promised there would be a lengthy feature on suffering farm families in the agricultural sector the next day. Food shortage, she said, is an ongoing crisis. With melancholy, Quinn recalled blending almonds into her smoothies. Then she chided herself for mourning her personal and tiny loss. She knew there were more important issues. What were the thousands formerly working in the California almond industry doing now? Asha arrived at bliss. We are entering the uprising sixth month, she said. The situation remains tense yet stable. Before Asha spoke again, Quinn asked her speaker to turn off. She took in her empty apartment and imagined Hush Harbor, home to both Nova and Zara. She wondered what they looked like now. Awesome. Thank you. That was such an incredible technique to give so much world building, so much exposition, so much context and backstory. At what point was Asha in the novel? Is it something that evolved with time or was she always there? Yeah, so Asha is actually one of my favorite features of the novel. So when I started writing in 2014, a big part of the novel was actually, I mean, it wasn't even a novel really, but a big part of the exercise was writing newspaper articles by different journalists on Bliss, but then on the wider uh, context in the US, right? Because you have to ask yourself, well, if this is happening in an American city, what is happening around that city that makes something like this possible, where the government doesn't just immediately stamp this out, right? And so there had to be some kind of set of other reasons or other disasters that had occurred. I didn't want the novel, obviously, to focus on that or to get too far into the weeds on that. But I did need sort of an instrument to bring that in natural into the world. And so Asha Patel, as a journalist, felt like, oh, somebody who would in the natural course of her day be delivering this news to people. And so somebody listening to Asha Patel would hear all of this. And it wouldn't feel forced. It wouldn't feel like I'm, you know, going off into expository. Let me as an author tell you why all of this is possible, but just within the narrative, right? And so that's one of the reasons why it also comes up in Quinn's section, because Quinn is the one character who starts off outside of Hush Harbor. 
And so she's still listening to the news. She's a news junkie. She's a political aide. And so she's constantly listening to this. So in the course of her day, you could imagine Quinn, like, you know, the first thing she does in the morning is put on the radio to listen to what's going on in the world. And so that was another sort of nesting. The final thing about Asha is, you know, a technique that I really love and that I've stolen from many actually authors is the idea that anytime you introduce a character or give that character a page of space, there need that character needs to return in some way. That character needs to have some sort of a journey, right? Um, and so introducing Asha felt also like giving me the possibility of bringing her back later on for another plot device. And so you see that happen later on in Quinn's section where you get a sense of not only the media, but the inner politics that are at play between the media and Bliss City officials, right? And so Asha's helpful in, in that sense as well. Yeah, so that's... That's Asha's story. <laughs> Excellent advice in terms of multipurposing characters. Again, if you are going to focus on a new character, say how many different roles can they fulfill? What else can they come back into the novel to do later that you might have had another character doing? So how many different roles can they play? And that was a really excellent device here in terms of the world building, etc. Anise, we are past our time. It has been so incredibly wonderful chatting with you. For our listeners, we're linking to Hush Harbour on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you purchase it there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast at the same time get this book read it for high stakes read it for the lyricism of the writing I could tell straight out the bat that Anise was a poet just by the the beautiful line level writing how evocative it was how beautiful that was and yeah we wish you luck with your next project and hope to have you back again thank you so much Bianca I really appreciate your time and that's it for today's episode I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.